This is episode 7B of Transit Matters Podcast. In episode 7A, we talked about the Livable Streets Street Talk, and in episode 7B here, we're going to be recapping a bunch of the latest news. Well, it's not the latest news, but uh, it's a couple weeks old, uh, but hopefully you'll still find it useful. You can find all our information at transitmatters.info, and unlike the last show, this is going to be very Boston-centric, so just be prepared for that. All right, so let's get into some news. Uh, we wanted to uh, just want to give you a quick update on uh, two events that happened recently. Uh, one was a couple weeks ago. There was a Mattapan high-speed line trolley crash, and uh, we didn't comment on it at the time because we weren't sure. Um, we we didn't want to just speculate. Um, there was an article, uh, I think last week, that the MBTA has investigated this, and uh, they found that it was driver error. That apparently the the trolley in front. Uh, had been out of service. Uh, we don't know why it was out of service. Uh, if there was, presumably there was some reason for it to be out of service over there because they wouldn't you'd normally run a train over, you know, with no passengers on it, and like in the morning. Um, and so, yeah. So apparently the operator was not in the vehicle and failed to properly secure it. I don't know what that means for a train, but presumably it means that it won't go anywhere. And so uh, it rolled backwards and it crashed into the following trolley which had stopped because it saw the train in front crashing into it wasn't severe damage but some people were injured had it was very difficult for fire department to reach it because they had to cut through the fence in the cemetery it was a whole big deal um so anyway i just want to give an update on that there's not really much that i can say about that um except if you're a proponent of a signal system well then this would be fuel for you to advocate for a signal system uh, i don't know if that's a solution um if you have thoughts let us know um, the second one is the oh the D line, uh, the Riverside line was uh, flooded. We had some heavy rain last week, and uh, this was I believe last Tuesday. Um, it was maybe two Tuesdays ago. We had uh, we had really really heavy rain, and uh, every time there is really really heavy rain, the D line gets flooded, and especially the portal at uh, Fenway Station, uh, where where it comes above ground, um, that has a history of. Uh, letting water in, and uh, in 1996, Kenmore Station was completely flooded out and completely destroyed because a water poured in there. And uh, this is this is something that's been going on for years, for decades. The Muddy River, which is like the in the Back Bay Fens, the, the um, Emerald Necklace, it, it just overflows. It just doesn't have any. You know, there's no retaining walls. There's no nowhere for the water to go. So it just overflows onto the tracks, and then um, it all just pours down in the portal. In the portal. Um, so what the T does is every time they get heavy rain, they come out there with a whole bunch of sandbags, and they literally just, you know, just sandbag it so that the water doesn't get in the portal, right? Um, okay, great, but um, problem is you can't get a train through there when there's a bunch of sandbags there. We don't have hover trains yet. So um, this this is a becomes a major issue, and um, it's just, I don't know if the T is, I don't think the T has any money to do anything to, to address this, but every time this happens, we have to do, uh, we have to do shuttle buses, and uh, it's super annoying. I don't know if there are any thoughts on that. Uh, those are my two news items, um, my two quick quick hits items. Um, do you want to talk about the next one? Or? Yeah, sure. So um, this this also was a couple weeks ago that we didn't get a chance to talk about on our last show. Um, it was announced that uh, MassDOT purchased um, for $23 million, um, from CSX the uh, freight line referred to as the Framingham Secondary. Um, and the, the whole idea is this is going to give the T, well, I don't know if this is the whole idea. This is what they talked about as being, um, the, the, 
you know, as far as the public uh, statement, the public public press release was that um, this gives them the opportunity to do what they're planning to to, to create a express um, rail extension to Gillette Stadium. Um, basically, what would happen is the Franklin line um, goes, you know, past uh, uh, Foxborough Station and Gillette Stadium, and the Framingham Secondary. Um, uh, sort of uh, goes perpendicular to the Franklin line, you know, more or less. So this allows them to um, have an express train to Gillette Stadium that goes off of the Franklin line um, and, and straight to Gillette Stadium from there. Um, they currently do have a Patriot, I can't remember what they call it, but it's basically the Patriot train that goes for, um, you know, for football game days. And I believe it actually goes uh, down the uh, Providence line and then I don't know what the name of the track is that it's on, but but right now that train it takes a long time. The track is like a, a class three track, and I know I think they're restricted to five miles an hour, and they have to. It, it's it's very complicated to get there, um, and it's even. I mean, if besides the fact that traffic's really bad around Foxborough on game days, I mean, really the train doesn't really save you any time to get there. It's just you don't have to worry about you know driving home after the game, which uh, which which is smart. And the train does sell out. It's popular. So this will give them um, the ability to do, and they were talking about five trains daily um, to Foxborough Station, which is uh, basically just the, the station there at Gillette Stadium at the parking lot. Um, and, of course, this would also um, be able to serve um, for games. And the other um, good thing about this is it, they would also have be able to have the train serve. People could take this train for special events like concerts and things like that which are also at the stadium, um, which I was telling Jeremy earlier, I've been in line uh, at South Station um, at the commuter rail counter and, you know, had somebody asking about how they get the ticket to get to the concert that night, you know, and uh, the the clerk was just saying, that, you know, there's no train that goes to the stadium, you know, except for on <laughs> game days. Um, so this will be able to do that because right now a lot of times people would have to take a train uh, to Mansfield, uh, which is on the Providence line, and then have somebody pick them up or have some other way to get to the stadium from there. So... Um, you know, there's going to be uh, lots of opinions about whether or not this is a good, uh, you know, spending of money. I know the town of Foxborough was a little upset because they weren't really consulted about this before it happened, and they felt like, you know, basically this is a backdoor deal. Um, and I was looking at Boston, Boston, you know, article that this is basically a backdoor deal, you know, between um, uh, the Kraft family, you know, the stadium, and the, and MassDOT, so that they can get service there. And, you know, have we really looked into whether this is the best service for the community or just this is what, you know, Bob Kraft wants, so he got it. So, um, you know, I think I already, you know, started off with what, you know, there, there are definitely some benefits to this. I'm not sure if this is a best-case scenario. Um, the interesting thing is the Framingham Secondary actually runs from, um, I think, from the Worcester line, and then connects all the way to the Providence line. So it's sort of a north-south line, and it crosses the Franklin line. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure. Yes, it is. It connects the Worcester line to the Providence line. And only a very small segment of that um, is between, um, is what runs to, to the stadium, between the Franklin line and the stadium. So they've got a lot of track there. I'm not sure. There's got to be, uh, in my mind, other plans of what they could use that track for besides just using a small portion of it at the stadium. But, Jeremy, I know you had some thoughts on this. Rail trail. No. <laughs> no, I hope not. Uh, yeah, that's, I don't know. This this just seems like a big waste of money to me. I mean, I, I just have a hard time with this, and, and maybe there's more to it. Um, like, the the article doesn't say much about the uh, 
about what you know what's involved in this deal. I mean, I think if we're talking about a stadium that is located in the suburbs, um, you know, that that makes tons and tons of money from people coming from the city to attend these games, um, you know, they should be paying for any service that's going down there, you know, and something tells me that the team must be making money on this, this running this Patriots train because they, like, why would they do it otherwise? Uh, Of course, that's not always the case. (laughs) Sometimes other reasons there, but I would think that this is something that needs to be the responsibility of, of the, uh, the sporting the Bob Kraft, I assume, is the owner of the Patriots or at the stadium or something. Um, and, you know, if they want to assume the full cost of building it and the full cost of operating it, you know, yearly, then okay, fine. Um, but the other thing is that the there is talk of, you know, this talk is, is using that existing parking lot for as a parking ride for, like, weekday commuter service. You mentioned five trains, okay, probably two in the morning, three in the afternoon, uh, rush hour. So, I think it's two, two, and one in the middle of the day. Oh, really? The middle of the day train? Okay. Well, this oh. is all speculative. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, sure. That makes more sense. But um, the... Oh, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, um, if you're just building... If you're just have running... If you're going to be adding service to a parking lot so that people can drive to it and park there and get on the train, why can't we just add parking to a place where we already have train service? Whether it be a new station or add parking to an existing station. So something there doesn't doesn't add up, and it, it just just feels weird and short sighted. We talked about commuter rail parking in the last show. We talked about Salem parking lots, and uh, you know about having you know, you can only build so many parking spaces, and and uh, you know if you're going to build a purely park and ride station, well you're only going to get that many people taking the train maximum. So something seems weird about this deal. Um, maybe they have plans to use the track for other purposes. Um, Twenty three million dollars worth. I don't know. Well, you know, and I, I agree um, as far about about the we, we did talk about the park and rides and things like that. I, I do want to make a few points though. Well, for, first of all, it was the Walpole residents was the other community that's upset um, that they weren't consulted. Um, Walpole was also uh, along this line, and it looks like Walpole would not be. Uh, South Walpole is is just north um, of of the stadium, and so anyway, the Walpole residents weren't, weren't consulted. What, what I would say favorite. that's my favorite because it's like it's like oh you know we're upset that we weren't consulted. Well, and the, and the T said the T the T said well we weren't we didn't we weren't required to consult you because we you know the, because of the right of way issues and things like that. Um, but they did they did say in the article that I read that they should have consulted them, but they were just you know eager to get the the, the thing done. Um, one of the things I would point out so first of all, there is no stop right now in Foxborough, but there is a stop at the stadium. So. Uh, I think that's probably what the Foxborough residents are upset about is that we've got this, you know, town center here. Um, we've got a main street. We have a downtown. Um, you know, it would be most transit friendly uh, if we were encouraging people to, you know, get on the train downtown near where they live already and where they're doing business. Probably one of the concerns here is that Gillette Stadium is not just a stadium. It's also Patriot Place, which is... Uh, a development of shops and stores and restaurants and hotels right there at the stadium. And it's sort of like the downtown for that area. And it's gotten to where people are, you know, they'll, of course they drive. There's not other, maybe there's a bus because they're not sure, but you know, they drive out there and they'll go to dinner and they'll do some shopping and whatever, just like they might do at, uh, at other malls. Um, and other, you know, but, but of course it's, it's a pretty nice place. Um, so there's probably also a tug of war going on between, okay, here's a private interest. He owns, you know, the crafts own the stadium, but they also own Patriot Place. 
which, you know, has, and, and this is one more way for them to get people to come and spend money at their place. Well, what about downtown Foxborough? Like, are they going to be included in this also? As far as the parking lot, I would say the parking lot that they already have um, right there is is way overbuilt if you're talking about a commuter rail parking lot. They're not going to run out of parking spots. It's not like the T is paying to build a parking lot. So I don't know if I agree with those objections. Um, you know, to the extent that right now, um, you know, rec- recognizing the issues between commerce and Foxborough and commerce at Patriot Place and the vested interests that are involved there, which makes this seem shady, to the extent that we do have real estate uh, development happening at Patriot Place, if we can make it more pedestrian or more transit friendly, I think that's a good idea. I'm not going to say this is the, the best way that we could have done things, but I do think it's a good idea to make what is now a purely car development and it's now walking distance to what's going to be a commuter rail stop. And I do want to reemphasize that all the things we were saying about how many stops there would be each day, this is all speculative. There was a letter of intent that was um, inked between MassDOT and, um, and I don't know if it was, you know, uh, you know, whatever the entity is that owns the stadium, which is, which is owned by, you know, the Kraft family. But it was, those two parties have some sort of letter of intent that hasn't been made totally public, um, about what they want to do with this commuter line. So, so I'm, I might be changing my opinion because I only because I didn't I had no idea that there was this thing called Patriot Place. I thought it was just a big football stadium in the middle of nowhere. Um, but apparently not. <laughs> I've never been there um, because I can't get there. Uh, but it's important. I don't know. I don't think I would have gone to a stadium in the middle of nowhere. But now that now that I know it's a place, um, I, I will think that yeah, it is it is important to have transit to places when that's feasible. Um, not least of which because of the the employees. I mean that's what I think about. You, know, you talk about retail jobs. You know, you talk about linking, linking. Yeah, you know, what about what about buses to you know to Brockton or uh, Attleboro and these places where that are nearby, where you know, or, or to places where you can get to Boston. You know, how about how about like just running a shuttle bus up to I don't know, it's close to there. Is Braintree anywhere near there? Ashmont something? Uh, no. No. Okay. Uh, one of the commuter airlines. Okay, so just run a shuttle to an existing station and just yeah. you know, if you are the if you are the property owner, this is a way that you get employees and you get people to come down and shop here and you know you promote it as, as like a, a thing i don't i mean i don't it's it's so out there that i don't know that anybody from boston would you know go there to do shopping no but maybe i people go to ikea and stoughton and it's like it's out there yeah people from boston <laughs> probably don't necessarily go down there to go shopping but people um in in that area generally may go down there i mean we're it's pretty far out down there and All i right. think this is something that can be done to compress the distance between what is a very far out suburban mm-hmm. location and, and downtown Boston for people who, who want to go there anyway. Yeah. This could also, it makes it feasible to begin building apartments there at Patriot Place um, because then people can commute it in. If I was going to put myself in the place of the Foxboro residents who have um, the Providence Line stopping through at, at Mansfield just to their south, and now it looks like there's going to be a stop just to their north at Gillette Stadium. I think that um, they're going to try to figure out a way to get a stop going through Foxborough, too, and I would definitely yeah. you know, support that. Well, there's mean, no reason you can't build two stations, especially you're going to put all that money into the line. Right. And yeah. the buses, I mean, they, why not use buses? I mean, if you're talking about the, the way to, you know, the way to sort of show demand for something is to, um, you know, have these these high-capacity or international high-capacity pitches, you know, well-used bus lines. And if you have a lot of bus lines and traffic congestion and issues, then, you know, then you talk about rail. But especially when you're you're talking about, I mean, how many people would if you're only running two trips a day each direction speculatively, you know, then how many people are you really carrying? 
And when it comes to events, I mean, you had in, in New York, like in New York, they just in New Jersey, they just built the rail link a couple of years ago to the, the Meadowlands Arena. You know, now you, you know, because they built a new junction station, and you can transfer. But you know, for many years, I mean, they just had, and they still have a lot of buses going out there. For many years, that was the only way you can get out there from New York, where the Jets and the, the Giants play, um, and the, the uh, New Jersey Devils were there for a long time too, the hockey team. And the only way to get out there was by going to the Port Authority in, in Manhattan, in midtown Manhattan, and getting on a bus. And it was, I forget what number it was, but, you know, and they charged, I think, a lot more on the event days, or maybe they only ran it in the event days. But, I mean, that's how, you know, you can set up a big operation and you have, you know, lots and lots of buses. And that's how you manage that because, and then when you, the events don't happen in the, in the rush hour, <laughs> usually. So then you can use those buses at other times for other things, or you just have a private operator run a bus service. It seems to me that, I mean, this may not be the best way, but I sort of understand where they're coming from now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's also, uh, I think we could remind the listener at this point that um, the Kraft family, before they built Gillette Stadium out near Foxborough, they tried for years to get their stadium built in South Boston. And um, the city basically told them to take a hike. And, and I, I know some lawyers that were involved with trying to make that happen. And uh, uh, the residents and, uh, and City Hall... We're not in favor of it, and it's interesting because now we're talking about um, the New England the New England Revolution getting a stadium uh, potentially adjacent to South Boston. Um, there's a few other uh, locations, um, but uh, you know, so that was one of the criticisms: is that you know, how do people get to this stadium uh, without transit? It's been a priority uh, of the Kraft family. Um, they wanted to be closer, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, they sort of felt like, you know, it was the Boston Patriots before they moved out there. Um, and they sort of felt like they made the best of the situation that the city basically handed them. So it's interesting. We're going to get another stadium um, at some point in the future downtown. Uh, one of the other interesting things Wait, was what? Uh, the, well, the New England Revolution are going to be building a stadium um, probably within Boston city limits. Uh, it could be closer to Somerville um, in what is known as the inner belt um, but it's it's gonna the, the priority is that it's gonna be a transit accessible um, stadium about twenty thousand or thirty thousand people which is the norm now for um, for major league soccer stadiums uh, we're one of the last teams in the country um, that doesn't have one of these soccer specific stadiums um, it's just not really feasible to have eighty to one hundred thousand people fill a stadium for a soccer game and the other thing is that a lot of um, the the fans for the soccer games um, they may not have car transportation. Their work situations may not allow them to, you know, take off of work early so they can head out to the far reaches right. of the greater Boston area to attend the game right. and get back at two in the morning. Yeah, you know? we're talking about lower-income people who exactly. just, you know, lack of often immigrants. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, these things are going to happen um, yeah. uh, as far as the stadium is. Uh, one of the interesting things that was pointed out in the article was that they were saying, well, oh, they're... And I, I, I sort of felt like this was the newspaper, the media people trying to make a little bit more than there was here, but they're saying... Oh, we, there, there may be some you know shady dots that can be connected between uh, this deal and the potential Boston 2024 Olympic bid. Um, I, I don't know if I see Mass Dot running out and buying a train line to connect to a stadium because they want to be able to have the train there to use during the Olympics. I'm pretty sure they could have figured out a way to get access to this short section of track for the Olympics if yeah. that was to happen. <laughs> I don't think that they would have bought the track today because we might get the Olympics, you know, 10 years from now. So I don't, I tend to disbelieve that, but, um, there was definitely a lot of conversation going on about this. 
Um, yeah, they, I mean, there, there is, there's also there. So when they say shady deal, it's sort of their way of saying, oh, there, there might be some corruption here with, you know, but instead of like actually investigating and finding out, is there corruption? You know, because right. if there's corruption, then you know, and then there's there's some deals going on between this, uh, you know, the the craft, I guess the craft family, mm-hmm. you know, that are trying basically trying to get the state to pay for something that they should be paying for themselves or you know, maybe bribing them or whatever, then we should know about that. But, I mean, we don't know anything like that. This is, this is, this is an issue people are going to have opinions on, so we'd love to hear uh, your opinion about the stadium. I think we've talked this one to death. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, staying with the commuter rail, uh, it was announced uh, back in November that uh, Keolis, the new uh, operator of the commuter rail, was hit with uh, $804,000 in penalties um, during their second month on the job as a commuter rail operator. And... Um, there really wasn't much more in the article uh, than that fact, um, but it, it's interesting. This is a this uh, um, is an illustration of the fact that the contract that was that was um, put together with Keolis, as opposed to NBCR, the previous operator, um, there were m- many more parameters and opportunities for the MBTA to fine um, Keolis or, or have penal- monetary penalties for them not hitting. Um, service operation goals, whether it's on-time service or cleanliness or um, uh, even hitting certain um, um, uh, ridership goals, things like that. Um, so uh, we'll hopefully talk about this some more in the future too, um, but it's basically it was just, hey, this is news. There's some financial accountability, which we didn't have two months ago Can I ask um, with the previous on? operator. Sure. Can I ask two questions on this? So yeah. one... Is does that you talk about these? They they had a, a better contract in in terms of you know better in, in air quotes in terms of for the T ability to to recoup money. Does that have anything to do with why NBCR didn't get it or I didn't follow? No, it, 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 that has to do with why NBCR people were unhappy with NBCR and, ha- and unhappy with the current contract that they had. Um, I be- I believe from the way that General Manager Beverly Scott talked about. The contract; these were going to be worked into the contract, regardless of who the new operator was. I do think that there was some feeling within um, within the T, um, and of course, I don't know this from firsthand experience, but that turning over a new leaf was the best way to institute new some new operational ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way to change it was maybe to change the operator. Um, when I heard Beverly Scott, uh, the general manager. Um, you know, interviewed and kind of grilled about the reasoning between choosing one or the other. Um, you know, she tried to tried to talk about how the project was uh, objective, or that the proposals were graded in an objective way, and there was a set of criteria that they were judged by, and um, that that Keolis came out better in the objective criteria. I think we all know when you're looking at objective criteria, you still have to interpret it with yeah. some subjectivity because you're trying to determine. Based on what they wrote in their proposal, what's black and white on paper, but how do we think they can actually accomplish it? You know, what's you know not being said is the believability factor. And NBCR did, you know, this because this does answer your question. NBCR did complain that um, that that they were agreeable to all of these objective criteria, um, but maybe they just weren't given enough of a chance to put it down on paper. Was maybe the complaint that they didn't agree with the way the, the maybe the project was scored. You know that um, they wish they'd had a second round to come back and say, "Oh yeah, we'll do that too." Um, so, but of course, you know that's you know they they had their chance in court. They they fought this in court, and it was it was um, dismissed as that they didn't have really a merit for their appeal. Um, 
in, in the way that this was, you know, handled um, at the administrative agency level. So, wow. so I don't know that. So, uh, my, yeah, my second question come, is more more broad. It's it's that it's sort of sort of two questions at one, I guess. If you're thinking about these these penalties, I'm like wondering if this is if this sort of makes sense. And I mean, I think more broadly, you could think about the commuter rail as as a whole. Like, does this does this model of you know owning everything and deciding all the schedules and everything and just like paying somebody to run it then you know and then just paying somebody to run it saying like here's this is what we're giving you and these are the track conditions and these are the you know everything beyond your control and you know we're paying you to run it and oh by the way you know we're gonna we're gonna find you if you don't meet you know xyz standards i mean is that is that sort of a is that a good way to run a railroad? <laughs> Sorry, but it sounds like you're saying maybe um, you've sort of handicapped or you're sort of handcuffed someone into what they can do, and then you're still going to find them for not doing everything you'd want them to do, and you're saying they don't have enough uh, abilities. I I think there there is definitely an issue with that, where um, the commuter rail operator, at least the previous one, has always said, "Well, um, yeah, we we want we want to meet all these objectives, but you know the equipment's old." You know, and the parameters that we have to operate within um, don't allow us to always be on time and all these things. Right. And and I think, you know, there's probably something to be said for that. But one of the issues they had with the past contract was that on the flip side, not on the stick side, but on the carrot side, um, the past operator was receiving uh, bonuses um, for meeting criteria in the contract even even while they were not meeting criteria for on-time performance and ridership and certain other operational standards because the contract um, allowed them to, 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 to receive you know, financial rewards um, for some things without considering you know, the, penal- the penalty side of these other things. So this goes to show that there was a lot of people that were unhappy that there was an operator being rewarded for less, for what people were considering substandard service, below what they guaranteed, and yet still get somehow getting rewards. Right. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, I wonder how they come up with these. I mean, obviously you want ni- like 95% on time, but I mean, you know, yeah, given what you're working with, I'm just skeptical that that's... That, that is the other side, yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely, that that's the flip side of the coin, for and sure. Like, I, like I've, I, so. I may have said this before, I mean, I don't know about, I'm not, I'm not, exper- I have experience in transit planning and policy, I'm not experienced in business. And so I don't know, you know, the ins and outs of running a contract, and it sounds weird to me if you're saying, if you're saying, you know, we're going to penalize you for for this, we're going to give you a bonus for this. It's like, why not just bring it in house and run it yourself, and you can do whatever the hell you want. And then, you know, you have an executive that's like overseeing that, and if somebody doesn't do something, you just tell them to do it, or like they'll tell you why you don't do it, or you know, maybe you know they'll tell you, well, the reason we can't do this is because there's this switch problem. And so you say, okay, well, you know, we're going to allocate some resources to fix this switch problem. And I mean, I don't know what to. What, how much control Keolis or in the past MBCR has over this stuff uh, and how much of it is just, I just don't know maybe it's just like yeah you know the whole question of operating in a house it's a really good question we see all kinds of hybrids you know where in some countries uh, the tracks are owned privately or they're owned publicly there's all different combinations of this and you know I mean sort of we see with Amtrak where Amtrak owns the rolling stock but they don't necessarily own the track itself and we know that has issues. Um, you know, some countries might just have Amtrak would be a private company instead. You know, and there might be a different private company that owns the tracks and a different private company that owns yeah. the trains. And the service is public, and you have to meet certain criteria. I, I, I don't know all the considerations. I hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, we're going to bring somebody on the show 
in the next few months that uh, yeah. has some <laughs> more <laughs> operating uh, experience yeah. with commuter lines that can maybe tell us what they think the advantages are uh, of, of operating the way that um, the MBTA operates its commuter rail. Yeah. So, I guess, um, go ahead. Should we, should we talk about, you, you just because you touched on it, should we talk about, real briefly, the uh, Amtrak was in the news um, because they're being, um, it was, there's, 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 there was a Supreme Court case I don't know much, a whole lot about this, but basically it was challenge. Amtrak was, oh, somebody was challenging Amtrak's ability to set standards for freight railroads um, in terms of the track and some other things. And I don't know if this is, do we, do we know about this? I mean, they. Um, I, I remember reading something about it. I don't, I don't remember specifically the article. I mean, it's been a constant back and forth. It, Amtrak had to shut down the Empire Builder route, which is the route that runs, like, it's either South Dakota, North Dakota, and Montana. Because you're North Dakota, Montana, it's, it's fracking country. Yeah, ex- exactly. And and the issue, um, and, and Amtrak's on-time issues in the western part of the country, so outside of the Northeast Corridor, have typically been, um, at least if you believe Amtrak's side of the story, mm-hmm. mostly due to freight operators and the freight operators own the rails, and Amtrak basically leases them um, because Amtrak only owned. When Amtrak was created in the 70s, Amtrak got the rolling stock of all these freight operators who had passenger services. They sold their trains to Amtrak, and they kept the rails for the freight operation. So, um, one of the things that really helped with the on-time performance, um, I want to say it was in 2010. Um, Congress changed the law and allowed much heftier fines to be handed out to the freight operators if they delayed Amtrak because they're not allowed to, but a lot of times they would say, well, it's more profitable for us to block the Amtrak train for a few uh-huh. hours um, and get our freight through because, you know, if if they get the freight where it's supposed to go on time or ahead of time, they get bonuses in their contracts and they'd say, well, that's a lot better than the penalty we have to pay. So the penalties were increased significantly a few years ago and immediately Amtrak's on-time performance went up. The problem is this started servicing again because with all the increased oil traffic uh, on the freight lines, which is a result of uh, not having enough pipeline capacity in areas also where you're having a lot of new wells coming online that don't have pipeline that can get to them quickly enough. So they're using the rails. Of course, anybody who's paying attention to uh, to this is, is... learning about all these accidents that are happening and we're examining what's, you know, our federal regulations right now for transporting um, um, petroleum products, you know, by rail. Are they sufficient? And um, because of because of the cost-benefit analysis of all this oil traffic, there's now, you know, even with the stiffer penalties, they're, they're still seeing it, well, it's still more profitable for us to even pay a bigger fine and get this oil to market faster. And so they had to shut down the Empire Builder service because they were having trains that were like three days late yeah. getting into, uh, what is it, Seattle and Portland, I think. Yeah, two. I lived in Minneapolis, and I remember yeah. you know, following up on this. I mean, it was just crazy. Yeah. They were so far behind, they just they had to cancel it for days in a row. And finally, they just suspended the service for a while. I'm not sure what the status is. Yeah, I think they rerouted right. it at one point. And it went, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was it horrible. Was, and so, so yeah. um, Amtrak was you know, basically saying, we've got to find a, a solution to this. And... Um, and what had recently happened is one of the companies that basically challenged Amtrak's ability to deal with this, and the company, the, the company won. You know, at least in the short term, uh, it's it's going to be appealed again, I believe. But so that's why it's not that's the board. issue right. generally. I, I don't remember f- what the case was specifically about, okay. but it's an issue that Amtrak deals with, and that 
this is once again talking about the corridors in Amtrak can run successfully with lots of people, uh, lots of passengers in the corridors where they have to deal with all these freight issues. So, yeah, well, interesting stuff, and uh, we'll have to follow up on that. I mean, and it feeds back into what we were talking about the Framingham Secondary. Um, you've seen this trend um, at least ever since I've been watching uh, in Massachusetts for the last you know five or eight years, where uh, the State Department of Transportation continues to buy up more and more track. Um, from freight lines within the state yeah. so that they can plan for future expansion. They, they can allow Amtrak to use the track. They can expand commuter rail, things like that. Like we, I believe we purchased the, the north-south, uh, I think they call it the Knowledge Corridor. Yeah, is well, the, it was also the Worcester line was, was exactly, privately owned exactly. and managed, and now now the state does the dispatching, you know, owns it and does the dispatching, and I guess because they can set the rules, essentially. And they were able to increase the service dramatically right. to Worcester. Right. And run more reliable service, from what I understand. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, the other uh, we were going to bring up the uh, uh, Mark and I attended a um, neighborhood meeting um, at uh, I can't remember what the name of the the school was in South Boston um, near City Point, um, dealing with the it was the draft proposal for the South Boston waterfront um, uh, transportation plan, and uh, you know Mark is we'll we'll talk about it a little bit more when he's back on the show because he has he's attended all the meetings and there was another meeting last week. Uh, at the Boston Convention Center. Um, But I would say that the short and long of it that I would bring back for Transit Matters listeners at this point, and we're going to talk about it now, uh, even though Mark isn't here because it is timely, is that uh, they came out with their, this is a better city, is um, the group that was um, spearheading this. It's basically a consulting effort, bringing together all the stakeholders for recommendations to um, the state and just and to everyone basically about what should be done about transit in the seaport or transportation in the seaport. And uh, from a transit perspective, what I took away from it was they're basically saying, okay, um, we want to reintroduce the Silver Line Three route, um, which ran to City Point, and is now basically the seven line. The seven route is basically serving that. Uh, if we did that, we would make changes to the seven, um, reroute it to where maybe the seven would come down D Street. I'm not sure exactly, but it would do. It would come down a different place from north-south, and then it would have more of an east-west once it got to South Boston um, portion of the route. Of course, none of these are specific. They're all just sort of recommendations of here's a menu of things that we should do. Um, We're talking a little bit about bus priority along D Street, um, and they were saying that they were very serious about um, Track 61 bringing DMUs um, from the back bay station to the convention center, and then on east to the dry dock. So they would go all the way to to, to the water. With that, um, they also were saying that they wanted to, their recommendation would be to um, purchase the new fleet of Silver Line cars uh, at an earlier time. It sounded to me like they were going to move it to 2018 as opposed to, I think the, ter- the current projection was like 2022 or something like that, uh, somewhere between 2020 and 2024. So they wanted to buy those newer, and they wanted those to be dedicated electric-only vehicles. So they'd probably be battery-powered so that they wouldn't have to switch over to diesel. And they were definitely um, encouraging moving ahead with um, um, tunneling under D Street. Um, and then they also wanted the Silver Line to be able to use the emergency access ramp um, instead of having to do loop-de-loops um, with all the rest of the cars to get on the tunnel to go to the airport. Um, 
I think that's, that pretty much sums up what they were saying. They also were they they want to open up uh, the northern Ave, the old Northern Avenue bridge in some in some fashion. Um, it, it could be for um, traffic maybe coming one way out, um, but also they were saying another um, option would be for it to just be maybe for it might just be for pedestrians and bikes with some improvements. Um, but it could also it sounded like uh, and I'm hopeful that it would be a, a good um, way to have a, a bus-only lane just across the, the Northern Avenue Bridge and having the car traffic still stick to the bridges they were on. Um, that being said, um, yesterday the Globe uh, and the Herald reported that the old Northern Avenue Bridge has been shut down indefinitely due to structural problems. Um, they had some consultants come in uh, and finish the report last week and said that the bridge was too weak in so many places they couldn't even allow pedestrians and bicycles to operate, which um, is pretty sad That's if you bad. can't even handle <laughs> pedestrian and bike traffic. Um, so we're not sure what's going to happen with that. It's the second bridge in the city of Boston to be shut down within about a month. What was um, the other one? The, the one that goes to Long Island. Um, to oh, the really? The shelter and the summer camp and all the wow, things What are they out doing there. out there? Uh, well, so the issue with that, I don't know if we talked about this in the past on here, but um, you know, the first question I had, and, and some other people said was, we have, why can't we just have ferry service go out to the island? Why do we have to yeah. have a bridge? And the answer was that, um, first of all, that to get supplies out to those places, they have to run trucks out there. And that the ferry dock terminal, they don't really have a terminal set up for ferry service. Yes, you can get boats out there, um, but they don't, they're not set up for the type of um, frequency. And if you're going to be delivering supplies, um, it just um logistically it's gonna be difficult with ferries and whatever they have there right now would not be sufficient for offloading you know tons and tons of supplies you know food and Mm -hmm. and other things for these for the hospital and stuff like that out there so that's why they couldn't just rely on ferry service so in other words it makes just as much sense to build a new bridge as to put ferries they they're saying um this was the ask the governor section on um boston public radio uh, a week ago and uh, it sounds like they will be trying to introduce um, ferry service to the island. Um, that is one of the plans, but they can't do it quickly enough. They can't do it to the extent what they need count? it. They have people out there, don't they? No, they took everybody off the island. So they evacuated them by ferry. Yeah. So now, well... Chiefly, that means they evacuated the homeless shelter. Right. It's really important for them to fix the problem before the summer because they run a summer camp out there for disadvantaged kids um, from the city of Boston. Okay. So that's so. interesting. I wonder if, like, I mean, I don't think people... I don't think we could we could have, like... You know the general population living and going out there. I mean, it's always been it's always been off limits, and it probably will remain that way. Yeah, it's a limited access place. Yeah. So um, there's been some discussion of whether it makes sense to even you know keep having people out there. But I guess it's a space, and they you know can use it, find a use for it. And MBTA MBTA actually runs three routes, four routes over that that. Uh, I didn't I didn't I knew they ran out there. I didn't know it was four routes. Well, um, it's the two seventy two seventy four is is like even less well known than the others. The two seventy five, six, and yeah. seven. Which run out? They run express from Pine Street Inn and somewhere else. And some of the Boston hospitals mm-hmm. they like provide that link, but they're not open to the public. So they're like there are schedules for them. Interesting. You can get like these printed timetables that exist for them. <coughs> I didn't know they were limited maps. access. I didn't know that the public yeah. couldn't ride them. Yeah, they, so it's like they're like they're not not really publicized. They're like, okay. sort of, like you could find it if you know where to look, but. Yeah, and they just announced it. last week also that they are going to be building a new homeless shelter somewhere in the South End. So, huh. I don't, I'm not sure what's going to happen with the island. It does, it does beg the question of does it make sense to have a bridge to get to an island, you know, 
the, the expense of it when you could have a ferry running out there. I totally agree with that. So yeah, we'll have to see what happens. Um, getting back to South Boston, yeah, though, you know, <laughs> I, I think that was the long and short of the recommendations. Uh, you know, a lot of the other recommendations had to do. There was definitely um, some bike heavy um, things that were reported. Mark can talk more about that, and that was encouraging. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it had to do with um, planning for for traffic for you know personal vehicles um, getting in and out of the waterfront area. Um, so uh, the information should be publicly available now and posted on the on a Better City website, so you can see what recommendations are made. Remember that these are only recommendations. This is not um, the official like, proposal of what will happen, but it was sort of many of options that are strongly recommended by this group, um, and they'll be seeking feedback. So, so there's that. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the future. Um, hand in hand with that, Jim uh, Aloisi, uh, in the ideas section of the Globe, I believe, um, they had published, uh, you know, basically an essay from him of what they were, what the Globe branded as, you know, visionary three visionary ideas to transform transportation. And, uh, you know, basically what they did is they sought out a few different people in different fields to put out some visionary ideas since we have a new governor coming on. And, you know, basically we should pivot and here's some visionary things that the new Governor Baker should be thinking about. Um, Jim Aloisi's three proposals um, were, um, maybe not in the order he gave them, was um, first he wanted to um, do South Coast Rail with a public-private partnership. Uh, Secondly, he dealt with the Everett Casino and the transportation issues of that um, and mitigating those by having a private off-ramp, on-ramp, and a private parking garage service that facility so that we're not dealing with mitigating traffic um, on the public streets that run through there. Um, there was some uh, a transit portion of the proposal also, um, but it, that wasn't necessarily looped in with the, um, the parking garage itself. His argument was basically that, you know, try as we might, we still, you know, people coming to a casino are basically not going to, they're still going to be arriving by car, whether it be, you know, a taxi or their own private car. And, yeah, I, que- I question that yeah. that that premise, um, but but I, I think he's right that a lot of the traffic would be, and I, I like the idea that he has about um, keeping it away from the city streets and, you know, mm-hmm. allowing the casino to pay for that kind of stuff, and um, I think there's, you know, he was... Not saying that we shouldn't have other transit alternatives, but he was saying here's what you can do about some of the cars. The, well, the third, city has, oh, go ahead, so go just real quick, yeah. um, the city has a the city of Boston has a big plan for um, redeveloping Sullivan Square into like, exactly. like a neighborhood yeah. instead of like, getting rid of that rotary and you know and that, the, the highway thing there and you know I don't know if the MBTA bus that parking lot is going to be part of it, but like they have this big plan for redeveloping that whole area, and so you know a lot of people have said that this. Um, and the plan is on shaky ground. Is it people such as uh, one of the representatives from Somerville, Mike Caparano, who's like been who's a big opponent of uh, this project, and and others. And so it's sort of this concern that it's gonna this casino is gonna kind of reopen that debate, and uh, or maybe already has, and is gonna sort of throw out that that plan. So this sort of makes sense. And and I wonder if like this is where Alicia is coming from. And it's like, well, you know, we don't have to worry about that. We can just like build a separate ramp and put in a tunnel or whatever the hell, and just, you know, sort of get it away. And so I can sort of appreciate that. I do. I, I'm, glad, I'm really glad you mentioned that. Um, I, I, I had forgotten that part of what he was saying was, we we in like a decade of planning about um, Sullivan Square and the T stop there and making that transit-oriented development and reconnecting. Um, Sullivan Square to Charlestown. It's hard to remember that it's in Charlestown because 
it feels so cut off because it's basically an expressway going through there, um, and and they want to make that a neighborhood again, and and so it's really important that all the effort that has gone into this, and now the developers um, that are wanting to come in there and develop that area, that this isn't jeopardized um, by the casino. The third proposal, the third proposal by Aloisi was um, dealing with BRT. Um, which it's come up a few times in the show today, in in South Boston. And, and I didn't really follow his logic, and I think you agree with me, Jeremy, based on what we had talked about before. So he was saying that we should run um, a BRT service um, from South Station to the convention center to the airport. And my first reaction was, we already do that. It's called the Silver Line. It's well, not the Silver Line yeah. Way, which is just a bridge away from the convention center, which is about, the last time I did it was like a seven-minute walk from the convention center. And so I didn't understand why that was so important, because I thought if we if we implemented the proposals, and maybe he just wasn't, hadn't already read the proposal from a better city, but if we implemented the proposals from a better city, it sort of seemed like, you know some of what he's talking about would already come to life as far as improvements, you know, and I sort of felt like we have such an investment, regardless of what you think of the Silver Line, we have such a capital-intensive investment in the infrastructure of the Silver Line, why would we sort of abandon that? Yeah, you, know, you, you can get more a, out of the Silver Line, those, that tunnel, I mean, the tunnel is badly designed, but you can still get more out of it in terms of more vehicles. Um, you know, you can also upgrade it to heavy rail, you could smooth out the curves if you wanted to. There's things that can be done, and it sort of seems a little weird to, to be doing. But basically, his argument is is where are the the places that you know identifying these corridors that bus rapid transit you know really makes sense should go in like now like, and it's essentially the original Silver Line idea, which is going from the airport to the south you know to the waterfront to South Station down Washington Street, and you know with the extension down to Mattapan. I don't know if that was ever floated as an original idea, but that was the whole 28x thing which we talked about you know, in the earlier portion of the show. Um, so I, I think part of he, he wants to, I think part of what he's what he's saying is, you know, we need to get something on the ground. You know, we need to do something good and get a demonstration on the ground so that it sort of sort of lays the groundwork and people see it and they want it and, you know, we do more of it. And, and I don't know if you're going to get there with some of what he's proposing. I, I like, I, I agree with what you say to the extent that... Um, He's picked, is that Summer Street or Congress Street? I always get the two confused. It's Summer Street. That run, yeah. So Summer Street that runs by Convention Center. Yeah. So it's a wide street. There's lots of right-of-way there. Yeah. Um, it's an area, so it's it's an area where it's easy to implement on-street BRT. Um, there wouldn't be a lot of pushback because it's such a wide street. Um, it's... Right easy to implement because the, de- the the stops are so obvious, and we have dedicated traffic, you know, convention goers that are coming from South Station to the convention and to the airport. That's It's, it's just so easy. Yeah. So I, I totally understand it from that perspective, and I guess to the extent that the Silver Line is currently overloaded, and there's if we were to say there's not really any hope to increase capacity, and we're in a state right now where there's a lot of demand for solutions Maybe we could support two parallel, you know, BRT lines in the C4. Maybe we could do that. But I'm sort of, I, I kind of feel like, well, if we could build a whole other BRT route in the seaport that's parallel and blocks away from the other one, 
could we not just invest in, you know, making the other one that much better, (laughs) you know? But I agree, it's an easy place to implement, and it's a place where we can have a, I guess, an easy win. I just feel like, from an equity standpoint, like almost even a civil rights and access to jobs and access to your community, there's other places that we could implement this that would be life-changing, you know? And maybe, maybe it wouldn't be as easy to make it happen, but... Um, if we're going to pilot something, I'd like to see it piloted in a place where we don't already have, you know, something that approaches BRT. Yeah, I mean, we have tons of careers like that. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, um, I, so I just kind of ran through the other, the, the South Coast Rail. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about that a little bit before, and I, I think a lot of people are going to have opinions on this. The South Coast Rail has, it seems like from the beginning, been a political issue, um, even from the Dukakis area, maybe before, about... A part of the state that has really been left out economically ever since um, whaling was no longer viable. <laughs> as <laughs> you know, uh, you know, as, as soon as we didn't need uh, whale oil to to uh, uh, give us light at night, ever since then, you know, the South Coast has been going downhill economically. And so this is sort of like a political way to to include the South Coast and the rest of the Commonwealth. Help them not feel detached. Help them feel connected to Boston. Um, the idea is that a rail link would would stimulate, you know, more investment um, there. Would give them greater access to jobs in Boston. Um, compress the distance a little bit. Um, a lot of people just don't believe it is the problem, and they think. That, I mean, we're talking. Was it two point five billion dollars? I think is what the price tag is. Yeah. Um, part of the problem is that. Um, and this is where I'm a little ignorant about the legacy rail lines that, that have to have at some point connected the area. Um, but they're talking about laying rail over, you know, um, environmentally sensitive marshlands. Um, and so there's it's just a long process. Um, so there's right. a lot of reasons that people don't want to see this happen. And and really the biggest one is just economically they don't see how it, how it pays for itself with ridership. And especially when you talk about all the other things you could do for $2.5 billion dollars. Um, to serve many more people in a more economically viable way. Um, yeah. So, for some reason, um, uh, Mr. Alo- Aloisi um, thinks that um, a, a private company would see enough revenue to be had from this that they would be interested in paying for it. Yeah, I could, I could potentially have a lot to say on this, but I don't really want to get into it because I don't know what exactly he's proposing. These public-private partnerships don't usually work out in the end because there's got to be something for the private investor to get, and if they're getting it, then it would be profitable for the public investors or it sort of doesn't make sense in the beginning with. but i mean i don't want to go down that that rabbit hole <laughs> but i will say that i think that the there's a lot you can do to improve transportation links to the south coast uh, without building expensive new rail and it may be that at some point rail becomes a part of that but um you know there's buses going down there we could make them a lot better we could make them a lot more frequent subsidize them we could you know look at uh, shoulders on Route 24, which is the highway. The traffic is really bad. Um, you know th- that that would be a you know a good start. And um, you know, and some of this is about funding too, which is bigger than transportation too. You know, I mean, talking about education and other stuff that they're you know, so it's sort of all wrapped up in this political negotiation. And I don't, I don't feel like this is a sound public investment because there's tons of things we could spend two billion dollars on, and, and you know, this may be worthwhile in a certain sense, but. You know what is what are you getting out for your investment? Yeah, I agree. I you know I think of it's difficult sometimes to be a transit advocate that's not advocating for a specific transit project yes. um, because I think we yes. always get excited about especially ra- laying new rails, introducing new train lines. It's always it's always fun. I think 
Um, but but I, I agree with you from the standpoint of we're spending public dollars on it. It it it's great to include people, but I'm just not sure if, if it pays for itself. It now is as, as dubious as I am about his proposal about a public private partnership. If there was a private investor that wanted to make it happen and there wasn't going to be a lot of risk taken on by the Commonwealth, I think I'd you know be excited. I just would like to see who that investor is and what they think they're going to get out of the project. It, it would probably have to come in the form of I don't know. If, I don't think ridership would cover the cost. It would have to come in the form of um, long-term rights to develop real estate. Real estate. I think that would have to be you know yeah. around the stations. Probably. There should probably be more of that everywhere. We're, and yeah, and that's something we have been pushing yeah. for. So. Hey, to the extent that, that a developer sees that as an opportunity, um, then I hope that it, that it would happen. Yeah. All right. Is that all for the news, or do we, we have anything else? Here? I mean, we could talk about Paris, but we, uh, yeah, let's talk about Paris really quick. Um, Paris, this has made news. They're, they have a plan to prohibit, quote, unnecessary traffic, unquote, from their city center. Um, so they're going to ban, basically ban private vehicles driving in. Um, except resident cars. Residents can still drive. It's like a cordon. You can't drive in. Uh, service vehicles can drive in as well. Um, so obviously, you know, if the residents can still drive, they'll probably drive more because you know, there's less traffic. But if on balance this means that there's the traffic congestion goes down and sort of like a congestion. This is basically a congestion charge, but instead, instead of charging, you're just banning it so that you just sort of eliminate the equity argument altogether because you're like, well, even if you're rich, you still can't come in. Um, and to that extent, if it, you know, we know that congestion pricing works as a means of reducing traffic. And uh, so, you know, if a ban will, and, you know, the buses will run, the ambulances won't be stuck in traffic. I mean, this is great stuff. And, uh, you know, other cities should should take note. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and we also see this in London, and we see this in some other cities. And um, But what you always see with this um, is... Um, a, a huge investment in the transportation infrastructure um, with an emphasis on transit, you know, and taking these congestion pricing, because um, they, they have a con- congestion pricing there, I believe, also. Yeah. And, and re, like, folding that back in. I mean, Paris has just had a, a crazy amount of investment, and, and all the towns, really, major town centers there in France have, have too, in their transportation, infra- their transit infrastructure. And, you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, Paris is one of the cities that's referred to as a walled city, um, um, whereas, you know, you have to be so affluent to live there that, um, you know, yeah, so maybe so those people who live there maybe can't afford to have cars, but it's also, it's, it's a, it's a city that's, uh, it's one of those car light cities, you know, mm-hmm. people don't need cars, you know, to live there. Um, but to the extent that you have to be that affluent, maybe they, they have the car anyway. So allowing for residents to drive, it's a way to like get this policy and kind of appease people. Um, but they, they've got great transit access to the regions around it. Um, That's so. important. You have to have good transit. Exactly. You just, yeah, exactly. You can't have this without. Can't one without the other. All right. Did we talk about enough stuff today for this show? I'm all newsed out. I think we're done. Okay. Find us on the internet at transitmatters.info. Email us at feedback at transitmatters.info. You can follow me on Twitter at critical transit, Josh at hatchback31, and Mark at uh, Transit Matters. He's the guy who runs that uh, behemoth. So, uh, yeah, get in touch. Send us your comments, suggestions, ideas for future guests and or topics. Uh, please no hate mail. Um, you can take a well-reasoned argument against anything we've said, but no hate mail, please. Uh, just nice things. Nice things.